Today's scripture reading comes from Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. The other day, my wife told me that two of our friends just started an organization called Finish Line Pledge. It came about as Keelan and his wife Allison were looking towards the end of Keelan's surgical residency. And they decided to think about it in a pretty countercultural way. It takes about 11 to 14 years of training to become a doctor. And during that time, you learn to live on a modest income. First, you probably live off of student loans. And then as a resident, you make about fifty dollars to $60,000 a year. But when you get your first job as a doctor, you're suddenly launched well into the 90th percentile of income earners with a salary upwards of $350,000 a year. But my friends who live in Philly with their four kids had already learned to live on far less and they were content. So they decided, You know what we're going to do? We're going to live on the 50th percentile of income for a family of our size in the United States. That's going to be the finish line for our expenses, hence the name of their organization. And then we're just going to give the rest of our money away. Listen to what Keelan wrote recently. He said, I currently have two years left in residency. When I finally go into practice after that, what do we expect to change? Hopefully I get a little more sleep at night. But other than that, not much. We already have our spending capped and we are plenty happy with what we have. And we don't anticipate changing a thing about our lifestyle. However, we will certainly have more to give and we are excited. 
We've already seen God do so much, and we can't imagine what he might be able to accomplish with even more. And humbly, we get to be, we get to be a part of it, to see it firsthand. Just to give you a little bit, I have an idea of the numbers. Uh, the 50th percentile for a family of six is just over $100,000. So if Keelan ends up making $350,000, they'll give away about two-thirds of his income and 100% of her income. Now, of course, Philly is a lot cheaper than New York City, so maybe if they lived here, they would have chosen a different percentile. But still, that's some radical generosity. But at the beginning of Nehemiah 5, we see something very different. We started the sermon series for the book of Nehemiah, which is all about the Israelites rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They had just returned from exile, and God gave them this mission to rebuild the walls of the city so that it could once again be secure and prosperous and that God's name would be magnified. And when they begin to rebuild, they encounter opposition from their enemies. And that's no surprise, since their enemies would prefer they remain vulnerable without a wall to protect themselves. But in Nehemiah 5, we see there's also conflict from within Israel. Look at verse 1. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. The people are suffering. They're trying to rebuild the walls, which was already a lot of work and would have taken them away from farming their fields, which was how they got food to to survive. But on top of that, there's a famine, which makes it even harder to harvest their food. And on top of that, there's a big tax they have to pay to the Persian king. And on top of all those external pressures, their own brothers are oppressing them. I remember when I moved to Portland, Oregon for college. I didn't have any money, and it took me a while to find a part-time job. So things got pretty tight for a while, and I felt that pressure, but I never worried that I wouldn't have money for food or for rent because I knew that my family was incredibly generous and they would make sure I was provided for. Imagine if, when things are getting tough, instead of sacrificing to support you, your own friends and family are taking advantage of you. That's similar to what's happening here. Look at verse five. This is their complaint. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now when we look at this passage, it's important to recognize that the kind of slavery mentioned here is very different than the kind of uh, slavery that is a tragic part of our history as the United States. There is no justification whatsoever in the Bible for treating people as property or as any way less than ourselves. It goes completely against the biblical understanding of man and woman as created in the image of God. What's happening in Nehemiah is different. In ancient times, people would sometimes sell themselves or their children into servitude in order to pay off a debt. So you would work for the other person, maybe farming their field or something. You weren't their property. You weren't any less human than they. You just owed the money, and so you worked until it was paid off. And this kind of servitude was allowed for in the Mosaic Law. But there are stipulations that made sure the poor were treated fairly. God cares about those in need. He cares that we're provided for. For example, there's a law in Exodus 2 about the kinds of loans that these wealthy Israelites are making in Nehemiah's time. God says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor... 
You shall not be like a moneylender. That's the same word that's used in Nehemiah, Hebrews, same root. You shall not be like a moneylender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear. For I am compassionate. So this type of loan is similar to many loans today. If I buy an apartment, the bank gives me a loan because that property is my collateral. So if I can't pay my mortgage, the bank can seize the property and sell it in order to make up for the money that I owe them. But the difference here is that when Israelites were loaning to, or lending to uh, fellow Israelites who were poor, they weren't allowed to take that pledge or that collateral. God calls his people to be a pretty countercultural community. It was okay to loan money to a fellow Israelite, but you couldn't just be concerned with what was owed to you and how you could benefit. Just as God is compassionate, you too had to be concerned with the well-being of your fellow Israelite. You couldn't take from him something he needed to survive, like a cloak to stay warm at night. See, one of the ways God provides for his people is through the generosity of brothers and sisters in the faith. But something very different was happening in Nehemiah 5. Instead of being concerned for the, the well-being of their fellow Israelites, these wealthy Israelites are charging them interest on loans and buying and selling them into slavery when they can't repay their debt. Instead of considering the difficulty these poor Israelites were going through with a famine and a high tax from the Persian king, they were thinking only about how they could profit from the situation. And instead of being united in the mission God gave them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, they're thinking only about building their own security and future. And when Nehemiah finds out about this, he's furious. He hears the outcry from the poor and is righteously angry about this selfishness and injustice. Now let me pause here for a minute to answer a question that may be swirling around in your head. Does this mean it's immoral to charge interest? Exodus 22 says, you shall not exact interest. Is it wrong for a Christian to work in banking or to take out a loan? Not necessarily. Uh, My dad is actually a banker, and there's a lot that's different about what he does versus what we see in Nehemiah. When we're looking at these civil laws from the Old Testament, we have to keep in mind that they were given to God's people when they lived together as a nation. They were the nation of Israel. But now God's people are from every nation, and it's the church that constitutes God's people. And because of that, these civil laws don't always have a direct correlation for us today. And even in Nehemiah's time, the Israelites were allowed to charge interest if the loan was to a non-Israelite. This law in Exodus had to do with how God's people were to loan money to each other. So if there's an application for us today, it has more to do with if I, as an individual Christian, was going to loan money to another Christian. So if I loan you $1,000, I probably shouldn't charge you interest, and I definitely shouldn't take as repayment something you need to survive. That's pretty different than my dad facilitating a loan of someone else's money, not his own, to some other individual who can afford the loan and who may or may not be a Christian. So banking can be a very God-honoring vocation. Now, is it possible that there are some jobs that do maybe go against some of the implications of this passage? Absolutely. And that's something worth considering. Before we take any job, we should consider how it might glorify God and promote the well-being of others Or how it might actually displease God and bring about injustice. Pray about it and talk about it with other godly people whom you trust. 
So Nehemiah, so Nehemiah sees the injustice of these wealthy Israelites and he's furious. Look at how he responds in verse seven. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. We don't have time to get into this, but look at how godly of a leader Nehemiah is here. He didn't respond immediately while he was angry. He paused and took time to process the situation and decide how to act. And he didn't let the power and influence of these nobles and officials compromise his integrity. He holds an entire assembly against them and calls them out. Look at verse 8. He said, We, as far as we were able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. They're cut to the heart and have no defense for their actions. And Nehemiah continues, look at verse nine. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Notice the reasons Nehemiah gives for why what they're doing is wrong. First, they're not walking in the fear of God. All of our lives should be lived in the fear of God. That is, everything we do should be in reverence of God and for his glory. In our finances, we should ask, how can I spend my money in such a way that pleases God and brings him honor? The second reason Nehemiah gives is that these lenders should be concerned with preventing the taunts of their enemies. Jerusalem was in ruins and the surrounding nations were insulting them and their God. These Israelites had completely lost sight of their mission. They should have been asking themselves, what can I do to further the mission God has given us to rebuild the walls? How can I bring him glory? But instead they're asking themselves, how can I take advantage of the situation for my own good? How can I make more money to bring me greater security? And there's something surprising in verse 10. Look at what Nehemiah says. He says, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. He says he's actually had a part in this. He's actually part of the problem. And he confesses it openly before the entire assembly. Again, wow. What a godly leader. It seems from what follows that Nehemiah wasn't involved in all the oppression that some of the other Israelites were, but he confesses his part. He could have easily made light of it or not even mentioned it, but he decides to humbly admit that he too had lost sight of the mission God had given him. And we often do the same thing. It's so easy to focus only on our careers or our own financial goals or the things we want to buy for ourselves. It's easy to neglect the mission God has given us as his church. Jesus has called each one of us to be active in his mission to make disciples of all the nations. Now, we all have a different part to play. It doesn't mean we should all become pastors. God has called most of us to serve him in a different vocation. But we're all called to live our lives on mission, to live for something much greater than ourselves. And one of the best indicators of where our priorities lie is in how we spend our money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the world notices. When they see Christians selfish with their money, they scoff at Christianity. But when they see Christians like my friends Keelan and Allison, who give away more of their income than they keep, it makes them intrigued about why we would do that and who our God is. When we become a church marked by radical generosity, the city 
will notice. And let me say one other thing here. <clears throat> when I was in grad school, there was a time when I actually didn't have any income. Uh, I was working part-time at my church, but for compensation, instead of a paycheck, they gave me uh, a free place to live, which was great. But it meant that the money I needed for food and anything else came from student loans. So I didn't actually have any income to tithe on, but it still gave away about $100 a month. Some of that was to a local homeless shelter, some was to an international aid organization, uh, some went towards a budget to give uh, gifts to friends and family, and $20 went to the church. Now, did that $20 a month make much of a difference to the church? Well, the church had about a $3 million budget, so I don't think they noticed my $20. <laughs> but I didn't give because the church needed it. I gave because it was important for me to be faithful to God with my finances. The church didn't need me to give, but I needed to give it. In the context of talking about money, Jesus once said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. I encourage you to give sacrificially no matter your income. If you're a student, maybe that means you give $20 a month and for you that's a sacrifice. And the $20 might be a testimony to someone else about the greatness of our God. Pray about what you might give in order to be faithful with whatever God has given you. These wealthy Israelites and even Nehemiah himself had severely misplaced their priorities. And Nehemiah calls them to repent. Look at verse 10. He says, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. He tells them to return everything they took and to cancel their debt. And look at how they respond. They said, we will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. What an incredible response. They're confronted with their sin and they're not defensive. They don't argue. They just repent. They go from demanding repayment to giving freely. Any money they loan was now just given as a gift. It's a complete 180. Oh, that we would respond in such a godly way. One way we can respond to this passage is by giving to support the mission of the worldwide church. By canceling their loans, these wealthy Israelites were empowering the poor Israelites to continue their mission. Rebuilding the walls was a financial burden. It meant they couldn't spend as much time working their own fields. When the, when the wealthy Israelites turned from oppressing to giving generously, it meant these Israelites didn't have to worry any longer about whether or not they'd have food on the table next week. All of Israel could again focus on the mission God had given them. Likewise, when you give to Exilic or another Christian organization, you're supporting the work God has given his church. Apart from Exilic, one of the organizations my wife and I give to every month is Missions to the World, or MTW. They train and support the missionaries from our denomination who are sent outside of the U.S. Giving to MTW would be a great way to respond to God's word here. It's giving so that those missionaries can continue the work God has called them to do. That's very similar to what we see in Nehemiah. And actually stay tuned because we have a missions month coming up in June and the head of MTW will actually be here to preach and to tell us more about their mission. Another great way to respond to this passage is by giving to Christian organizations that have a specific focus for caring for the poor. 
In fact, that's also part of our budget as, uh, at Exilic. When you give to the church, part of that money goes towards our mercy fund that provides for members of our church who are in need. It's offered to them as a gift. There's no repayment. And we certainly don't charge them interest. It's very similar to what we see Nehemiah calling the people to here. We can also do something similar by giving to organizations like Hope for New York or sponsoring a child through Compassion International, like many of you do. Uh, be encouraged that last year, each one of our community groups sponsored a child through Compassion International. And be encouraged that last year as a church, we gave $62,000 to Hope for New York to support the poor and marginalized in our city. And look at the effect generosity can have on the church. When these wealthy Israelites gave generously, it brought a great unity to the people. Look at how the story resolves in verse 13. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The conflict from the beginning of the chapter is resolved, and all Israel can now be united in the mission God had given them. In fact, in the very next chapter, they finish rebuilding the wall. Their generosity brought a unity that allowed them to, to complete the mission God had given them. And look at their focus, too. It says they praised the Lord. They didn't pat each other on the back. That's not the reason for Christian giving. Christian giving is motivated by a love for our neighbor and by a concern for God's glory. They were generous because they feared God. And when this conflict between the people was resolved, they responded by praising God. There's much to praise God for in our church. I personally experienced tremendous generosity from many of you, even just this past week. My wife and I are incredibly grateful and we praise God for your generosity. Let's praise God for how he has advanced his mission through us. Praise him for the 86 new members who joined Exilic last year and the 12 baptisms. And just last week, I had a conversation with another person whom God just brought to faith through our church. So exciting to be a part of. Praise Him for the over $160,000 that we gave to other ministries, both in the U.S. and abroad last year. May God's glory be the reason for our generosity. Let me challenge you to respond to this word of God in Nehemiah 5 by praying about your finances this week. It's hard to know how to navigate this. It's, it's not always clear how much money I should save, how much money I should spend, how much money I should give. Ask God to give you wisdom for how he may be calling you to grow in generosity. Maybe the first thing you need to do is make a budget. Maybe even have a conversation about specific numbers with someone whom you trust. And ask God to change your heart to make you more and more generous. Let me just mention one last possible application here. Maybe the way you sacrifice financially for the mission of the church is by deciding to stay in New York City long-term, maybe five years, 10 years, or the rest of your life. Living here is expensive, and especially if you look towards having a family, there's a big appeal to the suburbs. And I'm not saying that's wrong at all. God hasn't called all of us to spend the rest of our lives in the city. If you decide to move away, you go with our blessing. We love you, and we know that God will use you wherever you go. But I do encourage you to prayerfully consider if God may be calling you to live here long-term. The church needs godly men and women who call the city their home, who have deep roots in the community, and who can serve the church faithfully in the long haul. 
personally, my wife and I believe God has called us to spend the rest of our lives in this city. And that won't be cheap. Raising a family here will take a financial sacrifice. But it's a sacrifice we're happy to make. And we're confident God will provide our every need. The problem with all of this is that none of us are generous all the time. We all have greed and selfishness in our hearts. Even Nehemiah contributed in part to injustice against the poor. And God takes that very seriously. When the wealthy Israelites promise to cancel the loans, Nehemiah makes them take an oath. Look at verse 12. He says, And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. We deserve that curse. We owe God a debt we could never repay. But the good news is that instead of demanding we repay him, God has already paid that debt at his own expense. He sent his son to empty himself and to die the death that we deserve. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We have been reconciled to God through his Son. Like the Israelites in Nehemiah 5, there's no longer any conflict. We are united to Christ by faith. And that union we have with him drives us to praise him and empowers us to live with a radical generosity for his mission. With the resources God has given us as a community, honestly, we have a, the ability to be a church that not only supports our mission as exilic, but also gives away hundreds of thousands of dollars to other organizations every year. That's a compelling community. That's the kind of community I want to be a part of. That's a community that glorifies God and that our city will notice. May we be a church marked by radical generosity as we live united in the mission God has given us. Let's pray.